If you will turn in your Bibles to, to Revelation chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 7 through 12. I've entitled this message, The War to End All Wars. This is part 33 in this series. We're a little better than halfway through. Revelation 12, 7 through 12, hear now the word of God. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast out. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows he has a short time. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, remarkable are these words that we have just read, and we do pray, Father, recognizing this, that you've given us these words to minister to our hearts, that we might know glorious things. So help us, Father, to grasp these things. Help us to know what all of this means to us, this great battle, this great war that has been won on our behalf. We pray, Father, that in all of this, we would understand your grace, your mercy, your power, your victory. We would understand the blood of the Lamb all the more we pray in his name. Amen. I think it's an amazing thing how good news can just change your day. I mean, you could be sitting right where you are with no immediate noticeable change at all. Like just sitting where you are, feeling the way you are currently feeling. And the mere message of good news can change everything. I mean, imagine this. Imagine if this very moment somebody handed you a note and said, hey, you've inherited $10 million. Right? You, you just got a note. I think that could change. Your disposition would change. What if, and I saw this just this morning in a headline, 11-year-old found, lost 11-year-old found. You have any idea what it must have felt like for those parents when they got the phone call or the text or whatever? We found her. Right? They're just sitting there. Nothing has changed in terms of their immediate context, but they just got some news, and I guarantee you, that changed their day. Or maybe you would hear from the doctor. You know, you, you know we're, we're praying for this kind of, that the results will come back negative, and you, you're just sitting there, you feel a certain way, and then the doctor calls you, and it's like, hey, the tests were negative. It's amazing how just news changes everything. The, the mere knowledge of things, this, this kind of, can have a very physical 
effect upon you, right? Because right now we're just talking about something immaterial. You, you heard something. You got news. But it begins to affect us physically. The psalmist, I think, appeals to this phenomenon, and we, came, we opened with uh, Psalm 32, which talks about this, that the psalmist, in his unconfessed sins, was feeling the weight of his guilt, and he says this, that his bones grew old. He says, my, my vitality is like the drought of summer. So he's kind of going, look at there's something that is happening here that is making me feel like this. We read in the same psalmist in a later psalm praying that God would restore the joy of his salvation. That's the prayer. I think it's important to note, he's not saying, he's not praying that God would restore his salvation. He wants God to restore the joy of his salvation. If we could, if we could merely live in the light of the gospel, and what does that mean, gospel? Good news. If we can merely live in the light of the gospel, if we can merely live in the light and the knowledge of what has been won for us eternally by Christ, if you received a note today that the good news of your greatest enemy of sin and death has been eternally vanquished, I think it would change your day. But you see, you have the good news. You've been given the note. And yet, somehow, we're so swept into other stuff that the good news is not creating in us what good news should in fact create. This is one of the goals of going to church. This is one of the goals of fellowship. This is one of the goals. It is not, we are not trying to get God to love us more. You can't do that. You, you can't get God to love you more than he loves you. But you know what you can do? You can come to understand just how much God loves you. And war broke out in heaven, we read. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon... And the dragon and his angels fought. You get this kind of celestial battle taking place. But they did not prevail. That is, the devil and his, his angels, they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. You know, our Bibles say a great deal about spiritual warfare, right? Yeah, I mean, in the Old Testament, you got real wars going on, and then you get into the New Testament, and he's kind of appealing to the methodology of those wars, but kind of a symbolically, uh, this spiritual warfare that takes place. And I think it would do us well to understand our roles, and if you will, our weapons in that warfare. Things like love and truth and faith and what have you. But the verse, these verses that we're looking at this morning, 
speak of a different warfare. It's not really our warfare. It's what you might call the mother of all warfares. World War I, which was in the teens, well, 100 years ago in the teens, it was called at the time the war to end all wars. That's the way it was billed, kind of optimistically. This is going to be it. This is going to be the final big war to end all wars. But within 20 years, that phrase was used, what they call sardonically or skeptically, because the way World War I ended, the aftermath of it, set the stage for the more devastating World War II. I mean, you have the war to end all wars, and you had people fighting in the next war, which is a bigger war and a more deadly war. The victory that we read of in verses 7 through 9, this war that broke out in heaven, it is not like World War I. There's going to be no World War II when it comes to the war that broke out in heaven. In its own context, in its own category, these verses are highlighting a war that will never have to be fought again. That war is over. Now, in verse 11, we're going to see the nature of this casting out of Satan. So they lose the war and they're thrown out of heaven. We're going to see that in just a second. But just for a second, just for a moment, let us kind of be, just relax for a second, and allow ourselves to be immersed in the good news of a victory that has been won on our behalf. Sometimes we just got to stop and go, because we're not in that war. These passages, we're not part of that. It's something else going on, but it has a dramatic effect upon us, and sometimes we got to just be still and enjoy what has been done for us. And let us know this, that the only reason that we can be confident of our own spiritual victories in our own spiritual warfare is because our greatest enemy has been subdued. The reason we can have the confidence of the victory in our own quest is because our greatest enemy has been subdued. Have you ever asked yourself this question? I'm going to read a verse here from James in just a second. What must have happened in order for the words of James that we're about to read to really have traction in our lives? James 4.7 Therefore, submit to God. Okay, all right, I get that. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay, wait, wait a minute. Because I've done a bit of time studying the devil. <clears throat> the idea that he's going to flee from me, <clears throat> it's not really working, at least at a human level. It made me think of the armies of Israel in that wonderful story of David and Goliath, right? 
And Goliath marches onto the field in the valley, and he's just going, you know what, Um, if anybody can beat me, you guys win. And they're all shaking in their boots. And David, the anointed one, kind of, you know, gets a little lippy. Like, who is this Philistine challenging the army of God? You know, nobody wants to deal with Goliath but David, right? And then they put armor on him, and that's not working. And what does he do? He takes this little sling and he buries a rock in the head of Goliath. Goliath goes down. I think that is a bit of a fulfillment of prophecy where we read in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the enemy of God's people. And we see there an example of it. But even that is kind of a metaphor for something else. So he, he does, and then he takes Goliath's own sword and, you know, Relieve some of his head. All right, but here's the point. The, the enemy, this, this daunting, nine-foot-six, unbeatable enemy of God's people has been defeated by one person, the anointed one, and then what happens? Then the armies of Israel come off the mountain and pursue the Philistines. See, that's what we're called to do. The, the, the enemy is defeated, and we are called to pursue. Now, again, remember the metaphor, right? How do we pursue? With love and truth and faith. We don't pursue, you know, with hammers and sickles. We pursue with the armor of God. But this recognition that something happened to secure the fact that this great enemy of ours has been defeated. So much so that we're told that if we simply resist him, he must flee. Now, you might be careful to not let that go to your head. It makes me think of scenes you see in a movie where, you know, the, the weak, feeble victim is running from like this predator and running and running and then gets cornered and realizes, um, I guess I'm going to have to fight. And he turns around and he pulls out his pocket knife and he's like, oh, no, he's going to fight this big, gigantic dragon or something. And then the dragon, you've seen this scene, I'm sure. Some, the dragon stops, pauses, looks a little nervous, then looks very afraid, and then the dragon turns and runs away, right? And then the little would-be victim is like, I guess I took care of business, until he turns around and sees that there's a giant behind him, and the dragon wasn't really running from him at all. The, the, the dragon was running from somebody else. And we have to recognize that the fact that the devil will flee from us isn't because we are personally so imposing. It's because we have a giant standing behind us. And that there's a victory that belongs to us because of him. Now, verses 7 through 9 in this, for those of you who were here last week, is a bit of a recapitulation or flashback of verse 4. Remember last week, the devil is, you know, he's cast out of heaven and his tail, he drags a third of the devil, of the demons with him, the stars. So what we're reading here, I believe, is kind of a flashback of that, dialing in more particularly what took place that the devil would be cast out of heaven and grab these demons to go with him. So we need to spend just a little bit of time here on this whole idea of the devil being cast out. I'm going to just ask three questions. It shouldn't take too long, but I think it's important for us to understand. One, when did this happen? 
Two, what is meant by this? And three, what should we expect as a result of this? Right? So when did this happen? Now, the devil in this passage is cast out of heaven. All right, now, if you've been sitting through this whole series, you know that I take a deep breath before I decide to dis- disagree with you know, the popular current movies and novels and books that are made about the end of the world. Well, I'm doing that again here. I think the current popular theological trend, and I say current because if you go back more than 100 or 200 years, I, I feel like I'm in a lot more comfortable company than when I'm trying to deal with the Left Behind series or the Great Planet Earth or these books that tens of millions of people have read. All that to say, you need to know this, that if you talk to your friends about the end of the world, if they're at all educated about the end, you know, these types of things, they will say this, what I just read, has not yet happened. The position, the popular position today, is that this casting out of the devil from heaven begins at the beginning of the future Great Tribulation. This last seven years, which will be the end of history as we know it, moving into the, what they would call the millennium of that period. I'm here to tell you I think that's wrong. I think not only is it wrong, I think it's damaging. I think all error has consequences. But let me explain to you, and I have to make an argument here, because I don't want you to just to believe it, because it's my position. I want to make an argument as to why this cannot be the future, why this had to have already happened. One, the context. There's nothing in the context of this passage that suggests that the casting out of the devil from heaven is not going to happen for thousands of years. If you're just reading this on its own, you're not going to go, oh yeah, there's thousands of years here, now that's going to happen. Matter of fact, the people receiving this letter, the seven churches, have been told on more than one occasion that the things that John is writing about will soon take place. So not only do you not see thousands of years happening before this, you're reading it in the context of John conveying to his readers, this is something that you should expect to happen soon. The time is near. Add this to that. When, when churches in the Bible get letters, whether it's Philippians or Colossians or Ephesians or Galatians or what have you, we need to recognize that it is primarily written to them. Now, it applies to us if we find ourselves in similar situations, but I don't think it's right to read our Bibles ignoring the way the original recipient of the letter would have read it. And if this was something that was not going to happen for thousands of years, this would be entirely insignificant to the very people receiving the letter. The very people who were about to go through the difficulties of the destruction of the temple and the persecution of the Jews and the Romans, this would have meant nothing to them. They'd be like, okay, I guess you're just telling me about something that has no application in my life until I'm in heaven for thousands of years. Let me make another argument as to why this is not way in the future. There are numerous references 
And you, when you read these, when you're reading your Bible, when you get to what I'm going to read to you right now, I'll bet you anything you've scratched your head. And you're like, because I know I do the same thing when I read my Bibles, and I'm like, oh, and I don't get that, but I'm going to keep reading. I, gotta just, I, gotta, I want to read all of Matthew today, so I can't stop there or something like that. But these are things where, you, where you're going, all right, somebody's got to explain to me what this means. Now, let me just read a couple of you, and we're just looking at the time text. The time text in terms of when Satan is thrown out of heaven, all right? Matthew, or Luke 10, 17 through 20. Then the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. By the way, keep in the back of your mind this idea of uh, running from the, the dragon and not realizing that there's a giant protecting you. Anyways, they're like, they're pre- I mean, they're pretty stoked, right? Demons, were, hey, can you, that, there was probably a rush, right? And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, that's one of those places where if you read your Bible, you're like, what? What is that? When did that happen? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's nothing in there that says in a couple of thousand years. Where do we go with this? I want to read the rest of it, though. Behold... I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, I wanted to read that. Well, as I read that, I'm like, okay, I don't want to, I don't want to go too far here because I'm trying to stay on point. My point here is that Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Cast out of heaven. Not in the future. He saw it happen. But I wanted to read that whole thing because the picture here is similar to the one I just painted with the dragon and the giant. It was Jesus kind of, when he says, I give you authority, it's his way of saying, you need to recognize that they're only running away, running away from you. You can only cast them out because of me. Don't. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing, it, you know, success in ministry could go to your flesh. Right? So there's the lesson. Always remember who the actual authority figure is. But also when he says, Don't, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. It's almost like he's going, look at over and above being joyful that the darkness is something you have power over. Rejoice in the fact that you've been rescued from the darkness yourself. We, we, uh, we should always operate there. We should always operate with this idea. And, I, you know, for me, it kind of reveals itself in sermons when I'll write a whole sermon in second person, plural, you, you, you. And there have been times when I'll go all the way back and rewrite the sermon in third person. We. It's we. The message is... The message isn't really from me to you. The message is from the Word of God to us. And we should all rejoice in what has been done for us. Again, though, let me read another one because I'm making this argument about the time frame. We read in John 12, 30 and 32. 
Jesus answered, this voice, and the voice he's talking about there is the Father's voice regarding the glory of his name, um, has come for your sake, not mine. Now, now, read with me here, silently, while I read aloud. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When will the ruler be cast out? Now. And, he adds with that, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking about his own crucifixion, will draw all men to myself. One more. And you might think, I'm, maybe I am, maybe I'm belaboring this, but if you have conversations with your friends, you're going to want to find these verses. I'm just telling you. Now, in this passage in Matthew that I'm about to read, know this, that the strong man is the devil. And also, we get ahead of ourselves, in chapter 20, when it talks about the binding of Satan, it's the same word, bound. This idea that Jesus has bound the devil. Matthew 12, 27, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Obviously, he's in an altercation here. Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay, had he been casting out demons? Yes. Had the kingdom of God come upon them? Yes. And then he explains how this all works. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words... I have put the devil where the devil needs to be. I have bound him. I have disarmed him in order for the success of the ministry to move forward. All this is to say that the when of this event is part of the accomplished work of redemption. This war to end all wars has already happened. And the good news is that we are the beneficiaries of this victory. On the cross, we read in Colossians 2, 14 and 15, Jesus wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. What principalities and powers do you think he's talking about? Do you think it includes Satan? Do you think it includes the devil? That's the ultimate principality of darkness. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. So this is something that has happened, and we need to recognize Jesus is currently the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler of the kings of the earth, and the enemy of God's people has been cast out. Well, what does this casting out of Satan Accomplished. So the when is past. The what, as stated above, is the disarming of the devil. Verse 9 points out this particular attribute, and we're going to get into that again further in chapter 20, that the devil is the one who does what? Who deceives the whole world. So he's the deceiver. Keeping this in mind, that at, at the time when Christ was born, 
the entire world lay under the sway of the wicked one. The world as it was, was kind of like everybody except for Israel, and even just a remnant in Israel, served darkness. And so now the sun comes, and the devil doesn't like it, right? We learned that last week. He wants to kill the sun, wants to devour the sun. So we've got this situation here where the deceiver is starting to lose his power to deceive. His power as a deceiver has been disarmed. Now we talked a little bit about how that doesn't really appear to be the case yet, but it is in fact the case. And I would argue this, that our lack of willingness to acknowledge the fact that this has already happened is based upon a couple of things. One is our lack of understanding of the darkness of human history. You know, I remember reading um, those Old Testament passages where entire nations are destroyed, and you're like scratching your head going, boy, that seems pretty severe. You know, the Amorites, the Amalekites. You, you kind of, the, the, one, the one that we kind of give a pass to was Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, you're like, eh, you know, not one righteous person, right? And they're, you know, and, and Lot goes there, and what they're doing, you're like going, wow, that place, that place just needs to be burned to the ground. I mean, that, you, you kind of get it a little bit there that there's not one righteous person, and all they're doing is evil, evil to others, evil to themselves. There's no redeeming quality. There's no future redemption, and you kind of get it. But what we need to understand is that's the way the whole world was. The whole world lay under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world willingly believed the lies. We, I know we today, we get kind of bummed out with the current social, political trends that are taking place. And I'm with you. I don't like things, you know, that happen, whether it's political or culture or social or what have you, and I'll... I'll write a little bit about it, or I'll do a little video, you know, and then I get to weather the storm of people who don't like, you know, what I'm saying. And I have to be honest with you, it does kind of bother me when I see this little dip, you know, this little skirmish, this little battle we seem to have lost. But in the final analysis, I would compare it to this. It'd be like a person who had a deadly tumor, the deadly tumor is removed, and they're lamenting that they have a little cough. There's a great victory that has been won. And we are to enjoy that great victory. And recognizing this, that, that even though the enemy has kind of convinced the world to follow him, he's been a vanquished enemy, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this to you. And I think of, um, I thought of the tenting of a house. All right, if you follow my point here. Like you've got vermin, right? I don't know, termites, rats, mice, whatever it is. And finally you just go, it's time to tent the house. Okay, my illustration is the timing of the tenting of the house is the incarnation. Right? God is like, it's time to tent the house. So you tent the house, but you still have Everyone's, you know, skirmishes taking place. So, you know, you're, you're kind of going, this house is a different house. All the, all the vermin have been taken care of, and yet there's still little things. And that's what we see 
It's like the king has come. He's brought the light into the world, but there are still people in the world who prefer to live in caves rather than walk outside and, and enjoy the light of Christ. But that, those days are numbered. There is a sure victory in terms of the effect of the, of the tent. There's a sure promise of God that the victory of the light of Christ will in fact succeed. Why? Because a war was won in heaven. And the deceiver is cast out. Well, let's move on in terms of the expectation. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives to death. Well, very similar to chapter 11 where the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. We see here in this passage the establishment of the kingdom of God. It's the turning point in history. B.C. has now become A.D., but more importantly, the Lord has kept his promise to send a Messiah. He's kept his promise to bring the world out of darkness. For God so loved the world that he sent his Son. It's this promise God has made that will have an effect upon the entire world. This promise of redemption this promise of the beauty and the majesty and the love and the grace of God has been poured out upon us. And this new covenant in which we live, it is founded, as we read in this passage, upon salvation and strength and the power of Christ. We underestimate the power of Christ. The ability, as we've seen of the devil to deceive, it's been hobbled. It's as if the earth, as I said, has been tented for pests. This great victory has come. But those days are numbered. The days of darkness. But beyond that, I want to finish with this, at a more personal level, because the devil is referred to as the deceiver, but how else is he referred to here? The accuser. He accuses day and night. And the picture that we're given here is that of the devil who had had an audience with God, as we saw with Job, right, where he's accusing Job. He's going, Job's only following you because you give him everything he wants and so forth. You have this idea that the devil, as our accuser, has been kicked out of heaven. The accuser. You know what's tricky about this? Because we're, we're, I'm going to introduce us in a moment to this courtroom scene that we kind of see in the Bible. What's tricky about the devil as an accuser is, and I don't know about you, but I actually do, but I know about me, and that is, he doesn't have to lie in his accusations. He doesn't have to make stuff up. I'm not saying he doesn't make stuff up. There's only one person ever who was falsely accused in, in its entirety, and that's Jesus. So the devil, when he's accusing us before God day and night, all he has to do is tell the truth about the things we are, the things we do, the way we are, because those things have merit. 
I hope you understand that. I mean, we read in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Right? We, we don't have an argument for ourselves. I mean, the world, we work hard on it. We, we try to justify ourselves. We try to make excuses for ourselves. You know what, friends? Take a deep breath. Acknowledge your sinfulness before God. Rest in the arms of the blood of Christ and move on. Because if, the, if you want to get into a battle with God about whether or not your sin is justifiable, you're going to lose that one. If he's going to go, okay, let me mark iniquities. Let's have a discussion. So we have this heavenly courtroom scene I want to finish with. But let me just say this about the courtroom scene because sometimes when we get too forensic or legal, people feel like, well, that's, you're losing the, uh, the warmth, right? This, this covenantal, it's like calling the covenant a contract. Well, it's not, it's kind of a contract, but it's something more about, you know, you have a marriage covenant, right? Do you have a marriage contract? Well, yeah, but covenant's a better word. There's more intimacy to it. And it's the same thing here. In this courtroom scene, there's definitely a declaration that has been made but it's not as if the judge and your lawyer are indifferent to you, right? You know what I mean? In a courtroom, the judge might declare you not guilty, but he doesn't adopt you. He doesn't go, you know what? I really love you, and I'm going to put my name upon you and take you home, and you're going to be mine forever. That, you don't see that in a courtroom, right? And yet, adoption is a very legal thing. You're kind of legally saying before man and God, I'm going to be with you forever, to the day I die, I'm going to be your mom, I'm going to be your dad, you're going to be my child, as long as we live. And that's valuable. It is valuable that you're kind of going, this is not based upon the flimsiness of the mood I happen to be in, that I love you today, but maybe I won't tomorrow. I am committed forever, as long as I live, to be yours. So you, that's the courtroom scene that folds into the fatherly love scene. But in this courtroom scene, if you will, you have the devil making valid accusations against you. And he wants you tossed to and fro by every accusation, true, false, whatever, and you're feeling it. Like you're just feeling, wow, I feel very accused right now. And it's, and it's my own sin and it's my own guilt that I feel accused about. I, where do I go? It's, it's a valid accusation against me. Where is my hope? How do I get through this? Then all of a sudden, somebody walks into the courtroom and we see hope. We'll call it walking behind the veil. This hope we read in Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. You're not going to be tossed to and fro. You're, you are tethered, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. So you're in this courtroom, right? And it's not like the Johnny Depp trial where you don't know what's going on. People are saying things. No, in this courtroom, you have the omniscient God who knows everything. Like, this is true justice. Where 
the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, which was an Old Testament priest. So you get that, right? You're in this room, you're being accused, you are guilty, and then you have an advocate who walks in for you and begins to, his name is Jesus, he is your priest, he comes before God on your behalf, and he pleads your case. But he does not plead your case based upon your innocence. He pleads your case based upon his own eternal, innocent life. He pleads your case based upon his own blood. He says, honestly, I have paid the price for my client. Hebrews 9, 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, it is this mindset, the mindset of a cleansed conscience. A cleansed conscience through the blood of Christ that serves us to be servants of the living God. This is what produces, now keep in mind one of the goals of Revelation This is what produces the overcomer. Let's never forget why this is being written. The church is called to persevere. The church is called to overcome. So we're learning this, that we might be servants of the living God. This victory that belongs to us. We are called to keep the faith in light of this great victory. And it's from that perspective that we read this, verse 11. And they overcame him, how? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. I mean, it's an interesting, we are more than conquerors. Though we're being killed day and night, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, Paul employs this very similar scene of a courtroom in this beautiful chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8. And that chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but that crescendos with the idea of not a court scene, but you know where it crescendos to? Who can separate us from the love of God? So there's a legal component to it, but there's, a, if you will, an affectionate allegiance component to it as well. Get the language here, as he almost asks rhetorically in Romans 8.33, getting back to this idea of being accused. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It's almost like the devil's kicked out. I'm looking for other people who are ready. You know, it makes me think of Jesus, right, in John chapter 8. You know, where are your accusers, right? Remember the woman? And they're all, you know, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That, that image you get where everybody kind of leaves. And she's probably kind of not even looking up. And he's like, you know, Where are your accusers? And you see the same thing here. Where's the accuser? Who will bring a charge? You know why why no charge can be brought? It's, It's the next phrase. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? 
It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And then he moves into who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Friends, the reason why I think it's so important for us to recognize that this casting out is something that has already taken place is because the wonderful affection that we read in a passage like this, that our accuser has been cast out. Who's left? Now, this is all what's happening in heaven. Is it more important that you have no accuser in heaven or that you have no accuser here? Because we got plenty of accusers here. But the real important place where the accusations have come to an end is in heaven. And the more we have a heavenly mindset, the less we'll worry about the accusations happening here. They don't love their life unto death. They're kind of going, look at we have We have recognized with such depth what has been done for us eternally that the things happening here will have no effect upon us when God's ready to take me home for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It should be a quest in all of our lives to be moving in that direction in terms of our understanding of our last day here being followed, as you will, if you will, by our first day in the presence of God. Well, this is one of the reasons why, and I hope it, it penetrates, one of the reasons why, it, maybe for you, I don't know, if, I know some people have said this, that their favorite part of the church service is when the elder is up here and he says, I declare to you what the scriptures have declared, your sins are washed away. See, if we really got it, that good news changes everything. We can almost end the church service right there. But we're not going to do that. (laughs) Yet, when we're going to have to get into more detail on this next week, the final portion of this passage issues kind of a serious caution. Verse 12, therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows he has a short time. So what we see here is having failed against Christ and having been cast out of heaven, he now sets his vision to Christ's body on earth. What we need to recognize is that the establishment of the early church would be tempestuous. Typical times were about to happen. He's been cast out of heaven, and he's looking to do as much damage as he possibly can because his time is short. And we're going to have to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that the good news of the gospel would continue to have a renewed effect upon every aspect of who we are. Father, this idea that we do not love our lives unto death seems so foreign because, at least in the world that most of us have been brought up in, uh, the quest for daily fulfillment and the need for my own joy and peace seems to just prevail the idea that there awaits me in heaven a reception of glory and peace for all eternity is something that is very difficult for us 
as sinful creatures to apprehend. Nonetheless, we do pray, Father, that all our lives we would move in the direction of knowing this great battle that has been won for us and the, uh, being the beneficiaries of it and what awaits us in heaven as a result of it. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.